This week, how we understand the evolution of religion. It might not just be a coincidence that big societies have these big omniscient, omnipresent gods. And could investors who do nothing about climate change end up in court? The risk from future climate damage is big enough to be taken into account by investors who have an obligation to manage risk for their clients. Plus, the law that governs the computer chip industry may be faltering. So what next? This is The Nature Podcast for February the 11th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. About a year ago, I replaced my smartphone with a newer version. Despite being slimmer and lighter, it had more storage, more RAM, and the camera was better. And as a consumer, I confess I just kind of expected that. Dan Reed knows this feeling better than most. He's at the University of Iowa now, but he used to be corporate vice president at Microsoft. Consumers have been conditioned to believe that every couple of years, their devices will be more powerful, they'll be cheaper. Uh, And that may not always be the case. The whole economic engine based on that growth model that says every new generation of devices, smaller, faster, and one sells more of them, that's getting harder and harder to deliver on. This principle of smaller, faster, more sales is a target the computer chip industry set itself decades ago. It's based on something you might have heard of, Moore's Law. Back in the 1960s, Gordon Moore, who was one of the founders of Intel, Uh, observed that the number of transistors one could place on a chip was doubling every 18 to 24 months. And the semiconductor industry has worked to make that true uh, for most of the last 50 years. Gordon Moore didn't mean to make a law. His original prediction was a casual remark in an article in Electronics magazine in 1965. He noticed that in a few years of making silicon chips, engineers had about doubled every year the amount of components that could fit on a circuit. And he just said, well, that's going to have to carry on if we're going to make computing cheaper. If in 1965 there were up to 60 components on a chip, he predicted 10 years later there would be 65,000. It was more a business plan than a law. Here's Gordon Moore himself in an Intel video from 2015, celebrating 50 years of the law. My real objective was to get the idea across, we have a technology that's going to make electronics cheap. But uh, I didn't expect a thousandfold increase in complexity to be very accurate. But it has been, for decades. A lot of the things that Moore had very far-sightedly predicted in his article came true. Remember, it was 1965 when he wrote... Integrated circuits will lead to such wonders as home computers, or at least terminals connected to central computers, automatic controls for automobiles, and personal portable communications equipment. The electronic wristwatch needs only a display to be feasible today. And in the past 50 years, we have indeed developed PCs, distributed computing, driverless cars, cell phones, even the Apple Watch. No wonder the industry has been keen to stick with Moore's bounteous law as a governing principle. But... No exponential is forever except in the mathematics textbooks, and that's what we have been chasing for the last 50 years. And so at some point, there is an inflection point, and you say, okay, it's it's time to think about new alternatives. The inflection point, the new alternatives, that's happening now. Next month, the industry will announce that they will no longer cling to Moore's law as a governing principle. Making chips that conform to the law has a couple of problems. More components in smaller spaces means they get too hot. 
And when they're small, the chips start working in different ways. At very tiny scales, quantum effects start to interfere. So what next? Maybe the devices could talk a different language. Instead of using electricity, for example, why not use magnetism? Paolo Gargini is a Silicon Valley veteran who has worked at Intel and now works at Stanford University. He says that researchers are working on new kinds of devices. They use different effects. They use, uh, besides the electrical effects, they use some magnetic effects uh, or a mix of the two. And uh, they behave differently and they have different features. So they're not going to be a direct replacement for transistors, but um, they, they will um, open uh, different architecture for the way you design your system. Magnetism would be great for consumer devices because it would also use less power. It wouldn't work for every application. There's a slight decrease in speed, too, which doesn't matter for the iPhone, but does make a big difference for a supercomputer. Another option for future design is to do what lots of architects have done when pushed for space. Go up. If you look at places like Manhattan, or you look at Hong Kong, or you look at uh, Shanghai, you see that when they ran out of space, they began building skyscrapers. And so similarly, the semiconductor industry is going vertical. What it means is uh, the devices, instead of being crammed together on a, on a flat surface, they're now beginning to be built uh, vertically. And in fact, some of the memory houses have already announced uh, some memory. They use 32 layers of memory or even 48. So with this approach, we'll be able to easily continue Moore's law for the next 10, 15 years, given that we have opened the third dimension, the vertical dimension. The only thing that could rain on this parade? It's expensive developing new technologies. Dan Reed again. My bet is we'll run out of money before we run out of physics, um, because the cost of building next generation semiconductor fabrication lines has gone from millions of dollars to billions of dollars uh, and continues to escalate. But I don't want to be too pessimistic. I absolutely believe innovation will continue. The rise of the Internet of Things is one of the, the great events on the horizon, and that's actually predicated on billions of very small and relatively simple devices. The next wave, then, might be all our Internet-enabled fridges, watches and wardrobes powered by technology we have already. Many in the industry have questions about a future ungoverned by Moore's law. But Paolo Gargini doesn't think the law is so unhealthy after all. So the reality is that by now five or six methods have come and gone to realise the Moore's law. And what people confuse is that one of the methods reached the limit, then they associate this with the end of Moore's law. Actually, we will accelerate Moore's law, but will be by a different method. Moore's Law is dead. Long live Moore's Law. There's a feature by Mitch Waldrop all about Moore's Law and what comes next. That's at nature.com slash news this week. You were listening to Paolo Gargini and before him, Dan Reed. Coming up, the impact of religion on being nice to people and why shareholders should manage the risks to their business from climate change. But first, it's Shamni Bundel with the research highlights. Planting trees won't necessarily slow down climate change. It all depends on the species. That's according to a study of Europe's forests over the last 250 years. 
The forests here have been chopped down to provide fuel and clear land, but they've rebounded. So now we have 10% more forested land than in 1750. But that has actually released carbon overall because we're planting conifers in place of deciduous trees and conifers absorb less carbon and get harvested for timber. And darker-leaved conifers also raise local surface temperatures. Find the study in Science. Morning lark or night owl? It's written in your genes. Three separate teams, including one from the personal genomics company 23andMe, report gene variants associated with springing out of bed early. Each team found a dozen or more variants linked to someone's preference for sleep times. Many of the code changes were in or near genes that govern daily rhythms in our bodies. The results could provide a way to study sleep conditions like insomnia, which is linked to morningness. Find one of the papers in Nature Communications and the other two on the preprint server BioArchive. In December last year, the world agreed a climate deal. Forging this deal was mostly the job of the world's governments, but the private sector can't ignore climate change either. Jennifer Morgan of the World Resources Institute gave us her thoughts just minutes after the deal was struck. Investors have to shift their funding out of high carbon. The signal is clear. It is so clear. And if you want to have a profitable company or bank or anything in the future, you got to go renewables. Many believe that a vital part of the climate's future is in the hands of the private sector. The global value of companies in the stock exchange is huge, around $70 trillion. And with lots of money comes lots of power. In theory, the shareholders of these companies are able to influence the way they're run, and so could push them to become more green. But, like all good plans, just because it can happen doesn't mean that it will. According to Howard Covington from the Turing Institute in London, however, this may well be changing. In a comment this week, Covington and colleagues from the fields of environmental law and economics suggest that in the future, investors who don't act on climate change could find themselves being taken to court by the very people whose money they're managing. Covington came into the studio to talk to Noah Baker. If you are by profession an investor in quoted companies, you are very concerned that the future will be good to you and that your investments will rise in value. The most recent work on the likely effect of global warming on, on the world's economy is that it might cause quite a lot of damage. It might cause damage to long-term growth. Of course, when I say it might, it might also not cause that damage. The, the world's leading economists are quite split on this fact of the matter is we don't know. And in, uh, in, in the financial community, when you, when you don't know what the answer is, you just acknowledge that there is a risk there and you seek ways of dealing with the risk. That sounds like a logical step, but you're suggesting in this comment piece that there's more than just a logic to it, that there's actually a legal reason to be doing this. Some investors, for example, the investors that look after people's pension plans, or that look after their unit trust investments if they are uh, using their unit trust to save to pay off a mortgage or for their children's uh, education or, or whatever it might be. Some investors have fiduciary obligations to clients. The logic of our analysis is that the risk from future climate damage is big enough to be taken into account by investors who have an obligation to manage risk for their clients. 
And if such client finds that this risk isn't being properly managed, he may have uh, a legal case to bring against such an investor. And this same sort of concept is applied not only to shareholders and companies, but also to governments. There was a famous case that happened just last year in the Netherlands. There was a case in, in the Netherlands called the Agenda case, where uh, a, a, a citizen's group uh, brought an action against the government, which uh, required the government to do more to manage the risk to its citizens that future climate change would bring. And the court found in favor of the citizens and said, yes, indeed, the government must do this. Uh, that case is uh, has been appealed, and we're waiting to see what, what's going to happen. But meanwhile, the Dutch government has increased uh, its ambition for reducing emissions. And so it's already made some progress. To what extent will the latest research play into this risk? So the risk, I assume, is informed by climate modelling, for example, or is that not really the way it works? Well, it's quite. that's a very interesting question. In many senses, the climate models are quite good enough for the purposes of considering these risks. Where the difficulty lies is in the economic models. So, for example, there are models which suggest the world's economic product might be 4 or 5% lower than it would have been without the warming. Well, 4 or 5%, it's a setback of one to two years as far as a financial investor might be concerned. At the other end of the scale, there are um, climate economists who think that at world gross domestic product might be 50% lower than it would have been without warming. Now, 50% is a large number. And if one expected that by the end of the century, world gross domestic product might be 50% lower than without warming, that would make a difference right now to the value you would attach to an investment portfolio, simply because your dividends would be that much lower than you, than you thought. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty going forward, but those involved are starting to connect up these dots now, these legal dots and, and these obligation dots, as it were. Um, is this essentially a sort of a good news story from the perspective of the climate? It is. I think it is a good news story. I mean, there is an enormous amount that investors can do about climate change. There, there is a revolution in the supply of energy which has begun and which will only gather momentum. Investors like these sorts of revolutions because there are huge gains that that, that they can make by making shrewd investments. So on the, on the plus side of the balance sheet, um, it's a tremendously exciting time. On the other side of the balance sheet, on the negative side, uh, if these risks aren't managed properly, uh, we could all end up um, in a world where the, the, the wonderful growth machine that, that we've come to uh, rely on and enjoy so much uh, fails. And that's not a place where investors should want to go. So there's plenty of reason both for them to be very excited, to, to push the energy transformation along, and for them to be cautious and, th and thoughtful in managing risk. That was Howard Covington speaking with Noah Baker. Sharmini Bundell has been taking a break from the nice, simple science of physics and biology to learn some more about gods and how they might have shaped human civilization. But first, she challenged Adam to a game. Adam, this is a very easy game. Even you should be able to do it. So I've got some coins here, and you're going to split them between us, either in my cup 
or your cup. But the important thing is, what you're going to do is you're going to decide in your head who you want to give the coin to. Then you're going to flip the coin. Heads, it goes to whoever you just picked in your head. Tails, to the other person. Okay. Okay, flip the coin. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you. That's very kind of you. Okay. Ooh. Oh, one for you. One okay. for me. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like you're playing pretty fairly, given that I actually ended up with more, more money than you. Um, but what would you think, what would you expect to happen if you got loads of people to play this and it was completely anonymous um, and they actually got to keep the money as well? So I don't get to keep the money. Well, you might think that the players would cheat and that the players' cup would end up with maybe a bit more than 50% of the coins. You never said I couldn't keep the money. Well, this game is very similar to an experiment described in a Nature paper this week, as author Benjamin Pazicki explains. So, games based on the assumption that people are probably going to bend the rules and favour their own cups. And people do. Benjamin's from the University of British Columbia in Canada, but rather than stick with North American university students like many studies, Benjamin and his team did this experiment with people from all over the world. Siberia, Brazil, Tanzania, Fiji, and with people from all sorts of different societies and religions. And yes, on average, people did always end up giving more money to themselves. But that wasn't what interested Benjamin. The central question we had was, what religion's role was in the expansion of cooperation and sociality. And we wanted to test whether or not uh, certain kinds of gods play a role in whether or not people play fairly towards other people they'd likely never interact with. The societies they studied had a whole range of gods, from mean gods to just plain uninterested. Well, in terms of moralistic gods, the Abrahamic gods are prototypically moralistic. That's the omniscient god of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So you can say quite intuitively that God doesn't like it if you steal money from other people. However, when you ask Tuvans from southern Siberia, does the local spirit here care whether or not you steal money from other people, they're sort of reluctant because uh, to, to answer uh, because that's not how they talk about it. The results in this paper show a clear correlation between people's gods and how much they tended to cheat in the game. So the more the god was interested in punishment, the more fairly the money was divided. Now, there could be a few explanations for this. I asked Dominic Johnson from the University of Oxford, who's written a News & Views article on this paper, to give me some context. For quite a time now in the field, there's been this idea that um, moralising gods, and in particular gods that punish might be effective um, promoters of cooperation and an effective deterrent against self-interest. But a lot of the studies to go out and test that idea have been a little limited. So this study is quite remarkable because it looks in great detail at all of the participants' personal beliefs and is then able in a large sample size across multiple cultures to see whether those individual beliefs then predict their behaviour and in particular their willingness to cooperate or to be generous to distant strangers. Cooperation has always been important in human societies and it's easily enforced when you're living in small tribes of close relatives. But as Dominic explains, this changes as tribes grow. In large societies where you have anonymous strangers, it's especially problematic because free riding is so much easier. 
So it's always been a puzzle in the field of evolutionary biology and anthropology to figure out exactly how we manage to get to these enormous society sizes and still hold together. And, of course, many things might contribute to this, but religion seems to be one very powerful way of deterring self-interest and promoting cooperation, even among strangers. And a supernatural eye in the sky could be an extremely effective deterrent. And there's some evidence for this from history. As societies got bigger, the gods um, important to those societies got bigger too. It might not just be a coincidence that big societies have these big omniscient, omnipresent gods, but in fact that was perhaps necessary for the societies to get large in the first place. But, as Benjamin Pazicki explains, these psychological effects aren't always forces for good. On the flip side, too, is that uh, the kinds of cooperation required to engage in all, all sorts of awful things, um, religion also contributes to that. Um, so if you look at contemporary uh, issues of uh, religiously motivated or religiously rationalized violence, you often see uh, people who are engaging in some of the most expensive, from a biological perspective, the most expensive behaviors you can imagine, namely suicide. Um, but it's on behalf of a particular group. For Dominic Johnson, examples like this, and like the altruistic behaviour shown in the game, lead to a much bigger question. So I would say the big argument in the field now is whether religious beliefs promote reproductive success. We do not have these religious beliefs by accident. They're there because they helped us in the past. We have a lot of evidence that it promotes cooperation, or like in this game, it promotes generosity. But we don't yet have good evidence that religion helps to spread genes. That was Dominic Johnson, who's written a News and Views article on Benjamin Perzicki's paper. Both pieces are available at nature.com forward slash nature. And if Shamini Bundell ever offers you a chance to win money, please be aware that it's probably a scam. Plenty of news to choose this week, and making the selections, it's Lauren Morello, now US Chief of Correspondence. Now, first of all, uh, we've been hearing quite a lot about harassment, unfortunately, um, rearing its head. Jeff Marcy, the astronomer, resigned from Berkeley, uh, and then in the last couple of months, there have been another few cases. What's the story that you have uh, this week about harassment? You're right. There have been a lot of um, harassment cases coming to light in the United States over the last couple of months. And big funding agencies like the National Science Foundation and NASA have put out pretty strong statements saying we're not going to tolerate sexual harassment by scientists who take our grant money. Um, But what our story goes into is it's really not so easy for funding agencies when confronted with one of these cases to just cut off somebody's grants. Because I suppose other people depend on it, the money's already gone into the university system. That's part of it. You know, in a lot of cases, the money keeps flowing to support um, doctoral students or postdocs in um, the lab of someone who's been found to commit harassment with the idea that we shouldn't punish other innocent people for the transgressions of a, a PI. But also there's just a really complicated process. The kind of legal landscape of all of this is still something that people are trying to understand. Right. So there's almost a set of new rules that's coming into play, but um, it seems like it's new ground for a lot of people. 20 or 30 years ago, I think a lot of U.S. science funding agencies used to classify sexual harassment or assault. 
um, as a form of research misconduct. But these days, um, agencies deal with sexual harassment and assault under a U.S. law called Title IX. Um, and Title IX was enacted in 1972, and it specifically addresses discrimination based on sex um, in any educational institution that receives um, U.S. government funds. That legally includes things like harassment and assault. And the way the process generally works, the home institution investigates uh, through its Title IX office, which enforces that federal law. And then if a person is found to have um, violated university policy on these counts, that gets forwarded um, often to the person's funding agency. And then the funding agency tries to figure out what to do. So universities can work with funding agencies to reassign those grants to new principal investigators, but in, in some cases, funders might just want to cut off grants. What's interesting is that, for example, the NSF has never actually banned scientist grant recipient for violating Title IX. Right. So I was going to say, you know, has anyone, it's all very well Title IX existing, but has there been, has anyone acted upon it yet? As far as we can tell, for example, the National Institutes of Health and the NSF have never cut off anyone's grant funding for a Title IX violation. They theoretically have the power as well to cut off an entire institution's funding if an institution is found not to comply with Title IX, um, and they've never done that either. Do we know what's happening in any of the cases that have been very recent, like Jeff Marcy at the University of California, Berkeley? What's happening to his money? Jeff Marcy had a mix of public and private grants. Um, some of his private money came through uh, this $100 million project, Breakthrough Listen, to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And that private grant money was easily transferred to new principal investigators. As far as the public money, the University of California, Berkeley, is working to designate new principal investigators to handle um, Marcy's two NASA grants, which have a total value of about $1 million. We're moving on to a very different subject area and another story this week concerning the state of um, very old growth forests in Tasmania. They're not doing very well with the recent bushfires. Bushfires have been burning at multiple sites in northwestern Tasmania and Australia um, since the middle of January. There have been two big lightning storms that have ignited these fires. Bushfires are not necessarily that unusual, but normally they strike in ecosystems that have evolved to cope with fire. And these bushfires in Tasmania are um, encroaching on forests that are these ancient remnants of ecosystems that date back more than 180 million years to when Tasmania was part of what's called the Gondwana supercontinent um, before it broke off from that. Um, and, and these ecosystems are full of really old trees, some of them a thousand years old, that just have not adapted to cope with fire. Is there any way that these trees in these fire-susceptible regions might be protected in any way, or do we just have to watch them as they burn? There's been, a, I think, an active discussion in Australia among scientists about what to do here, because scientists are worried about this year's bushfires, but they're also worried about how the climate is changing and suspect that bushfires like this might become more common. Um, and at least one researcher has proposed taking seeds from these 
species in this ancient forest and conserving them in another location um, to keep them safe from fire, essentially to make sure that they live on. But ultimately, the prediction, of course, is that climate change might worsen the scenario for this area in general and and they can't be protected forever, I suppose. That's true. But I think, you know, this is a common story in, in ecology um, and a common story for ecologists grappling with the effects of climate change on ecosystems that are starting to suffer. Um, having something is better than, than nothing. Lauren Morello, thank you very much for joining us. More at nature.com slash news, where you can also keep an eye on lots of other bits and bobs, like the latest on those gravitational wave rumours that we talked about in last month's back chat. There's also a video explaining how the LIGO facility plans to find the things. That's at youtube.com slash nature video channel. And when you're done browsing around, why not hop over to iTunes and leave us a review? Finally, a correction. Two shows ago, we featured an exhibition about Elizabethan scholar John Dee and his library. The curator Sarah Backhouse gave me a tour, only I mistakenly called her Emma in the introduction. Sorry, Sarah, and thanks again for the tour. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 